0: had a repair session. After repair session, I would get on the radio and I'd listen to public radio where they're having Dick Costell was reading a book and he'd do just a chapter every day, get get about an hour of reading it. So my mind was now off of the storm, off of the fact that I was looking at this very challenging, risky effort to climb in the wintertime and focus on a spring in a a stream running through a beautiful meadow in Virginia.
1: Welcome to Love Leaders Podcast. Have you ever found yourself struggling with your relationships, career decisions, or maybe you have a goal you've been trying to reach or struggling with that big question in life, what is my purpose? There are so many challenges we face. Well, this podcast is for you. I'm Todd Houston, and I've had my share of ups and downs. From an accident where I died twice, a leg amputation, divorces, and addictions, to being happily married, beautiful children, breaking world records, and multiple prestigious awards. I've spoken in King's palaces, to victims in war zones, and gangs on the streets. And one thing I've learned, life is a lesson in love. Join us today as we discuss with top experts how you can overcome life's challenges and reach your goals with heart. Thank you for uh, being here. This is uh, the Pod Houston podcast, uh, the Love Leaders podcast. I'm here with uh, my lovely wife, Julie, and any of you all that know Julie uh, know that uh, she's actually the star of the show.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, anyhow, uh, so... We, we have a new podcast, and we're going to be airing this every day, 10 a.m. Central Time, 11 uh, Eastern, and 9 o'clock Mountain, 8 o'clock uh, Pacific Time. We're going to have some amazing guests that we're going to be interviewing. We're also uh, going to uh, just try to give you all the best information that we know to encourage you, to inspire you, to help you overcome the challenges in life, to help you get to the the top of the mountains, and speaking of mountains, we got a major mountain climber guest with us today, and we just want to encourage you that um, you have the strength, you have the power within you, and we believe that that power that that is the, the one thing that's going to get you through any challenge in life is the power of unconditional and pure love, and, and we believe life is a lesson in love. All these situations we go through in life, all the people we meet, it's all there to help teach us what love is about, and how we can be a more loving person, how we can share more love with others, how we can receive more love. And um, I just want to say, you know, I think this is going to be just an amazing experience for us. Uh, and Julie is, you know, she's my she's my partner in this. So you can see how how this kind of love actually works in in a romantic relationship. Also, as uh, we've been married for about. Well, wow, I guess we've been together eight years now. Has it been that long? Right. A, ouch, ouch. Really? <laughs> That's all <bullshit.
2: laughs>
0: Time flies when you're having fun.
2: Exactly. That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking.
1: Oh, so anyhow, but you can join us on Zoom and you can join us on Facebook. So so I want to get uh, to our guest today uh, at uh, an amazing, amazing. Should I put one more amazing in there?
2: Definitely.
1: I already did. The, That's enough, actually. And with everything that uh, is going on in life, sometimes we're we're faced with situations where uh, where we're feeling kind of isolated, where we're kind of um, feeling a little bit on our own. Of course, sometimes we're kind of forced in that situation, as many people are now experiencing. And Vern has been in those type of situations uh, where he has faced extreme isolation and extreme conditions. And that's what we want to talk to Vern about today is how do you get through some of the, some of the craziness that isolation can bring to your, your physical and your, your emotional body. So with that, I want to introduce Vern Tejas. Vern, please say hello.
0: Hello everyone. Thank you for joining us.
1: Well, it is it is awesome having you today, and and I want everybody to know you can type in your questions, your chat. We have Sunny, uh, she is the the moderator. She will be watching everything, making sure we get your questions, and and we'll be more than happy to take them uh, in real time as much as we can, uh, so that uh, we can take care of it before we move on to another subject. But, uh, Vern, I I got to give you a little bit of an introduction here. Uh, Vern is the uh, he is the mountain climbers mountain climber and is one of the top mountaineers probably ever. And uh, one of the, if, if you're a mountain climbing guide, he's the mountain climbing guy that you'd look to as, as an example. So uh, if you had been on one of Byrne's mountaineering expeditions, It's kind of like saying that you were taking physics from Einstein and he was your professor. Wow. Yeah, he's he's
2: (laughs) that guy. Good. He
1: is that guy. He (laughs) is that guy. So uh, he has climbed the highest elevations of all the continents. Uh, He's been on uh, each of them at least 10 times. He just recently wrote a book about it called 70 Summits which I assume you can get on Amazon and places like that, correct? Robert? That is correct. So uh, anyhow, he, he talks about a lot of his expeditions. He has uh, several other books out too, uh, one of which we're going to refer back on this isolation. But he uh, he has been on Everest uh, 10 times?
2: Only 10, seriously. At least 10 <laughs>
1: times? 10, 10 times to the summit. I actually uh,
0: had to attempt it 14 times, but uh, 10 times I've been uh, lucky enough and uh, strong enough to actually make it to the summit with the team I was guiding mm,
1: okay okay so uh so those other four times that you didn't make it were you disappointed?
0: oh yeah, there's always the letdown of you know not attaining your your stated goal, but uh, that's goes with the territory it's part of life it's part of the mountains uh, you don't always succeed I think uh Thomas Edison you know experimented. 30,000 times, I think it was. It was an amazing amount of numbers before he actually ended up coming up with a light bulb. So uh, right. same thing wow. in mountaineering. Uh, fortunately, I'm a little more successful
1: than that. But, uh, <laughs> Well, you know, given, given the fact that you're you're here talking with us right now and you've done all of this, I would consider all your mountain climbings a success because you're here to tell about them. So uh, sir, uh, as you well know, there are people that and we'll talk about this had, that have made it to the top and they might call that a success, but they didn't make it back to the bottom. So that's really not a successful mountain climb. Uh,
0: that's correct. Uh, the whole goal is to come back so you can uh, bask in the glory, if you will, or, or at least uh, tell your friends about it and other mountaineers. Um, so yeah, it's a round trip it ne- necessarily. So, Yeah. <laughs> so, so give
1: us a little bit of a, uh, Give us a little bit of history of your mountain climbing. What, what, are, what are some of the mountains that, that you have done in this world? Just give people an example of some of the extreme conditions and challenges that you've had to face and overcome.
0: Well, once again, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I left Texas as a young man and ended up in Alaska, fell in love with the mountains, and uh, saw Denali like my third day in the state. And from that, uh, fell in love with it and decided I was gonna to climb it. And it took me, oh, about five years of uh, active um, searching and learning and growing. And I'd seek out the old timers in the community and, and follow them up into the mountains. And then eventually I got to the point where I was taking younger uh, mountaineers up into the mountains myself. After five years of doing that, I finally got enough uh, under, experience under my belt that I felt comfortable uh, going on to uh, the mountain. And uh, it was a challenging experience. Uh, but once I once I figured out how it's done, I was able to uh, then proceed uh, to becoming a guide. And I've so, been guiding so, it
1: ever since. You, well, when you left Texas, Obviously, when you got to Colorado, uh, you either took the wrong right turn or left turn or whatever. You don't just end up in Alaska. I mean, that's a that's a long ways. Yeah, actually,
0: I was I was experiencing the whole continent. I had hitchhiked uh, pretty much all over the United States, and then I was crossing Canada. Sorry. Oh, it's uh, eighteen nineteen, right in that range. Yeah, so it was fun. Uh, you know, I actually dropped out of school just to explore. Uh, but I was exploring Canada at the time and we went all the way across uh, from one side. I think I started in Quebec and all the way out to the Yukon. And when I was in Yukon, caught a ride into Alaska. And that started that whole snowball project. The guy who picked me up was a, a climber or a wannabe climber. And when the, when the two of us saw Denali, we looked up and he said, I'm going to climb it. And I said, I am too. He climbed it the next year. It took me five years of apprenticing myself and learning before I could actually go up the mountain uh, as, as a guided client, actually. Uh, and then from there, that opened doors uh, to becoming a guide. And one of the things I wanted to do uh, was to become, growing up in Texas, on the Gulf Coast, there's no challenges like, like there are in Alaska. Uh, so my goal was to become a winter mountaineer. So I had a winter ascent of, uh, of Logan, which is the, the first highest in uh, Canada, the yeah. second highest in North America.
1: And, and really a very extreme climb. And by the way, yes. I do want to support him on the idea that Western Texas climbing is a little different because I can remember doing the highest point of Texas, Guadalupe Peak, and that day
0: it was 118
1: degrees. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, very so challenging.
0: in Alaska. Very challenging in in its own right, but uh, definitely a different kind of challenge. Now I was working with cold. I grew up in the heat. I was a lifeguard through my teenage years in Houston, Texas. I knew how to handle 100 degree heat, 110 degree heat, but 50 but below was, was a, a, a uh, Olympic challenge. Uh, yeah,
1: your dad was an Olympic swim coach,
0: wasn't he? He was. Uh, and uh, we kind of—I was raised. I was raised uh, as a swimmer and raised around Olympians and national contenders. Um, so I got to to brush shoulders with a, an amazing amount of people. And I think maybe this is kind of where my my drive and my ambition comes from because I was always around people that were top of the game. You know, some of them the best in the world, and that made me want to do my best. So from climbing uh, as a guide, I went into climbing in the wintertime, I climbed Logan, climbed Mount Hunter, which is also amazing mountain in Alaska in the wintertime. Did the first winter ascent of both those mountains. And then I tried uh, solo ascent of Denali. From there, I was successful. Fortunately, it did come back down. But from there, I was able to uh, spring. I mean, at that point, people wanted me to to join with, with their expedition, so I got invited to do uh, the highest mountain in Russia, highest mountain in uh, South America, uh, highest mountain in Antarctica, and also uh, was then invited to do the highest mountain in the world, which was Everest. As a guide, uh, there was a pretty uh, wonderful offer that I got. I mean, I, I felt like, like I was coming into my own when people were saying, like, we want you to lead us up Everest, even though I'd never been there. But that's what with I was all
2: say, your first time yeah. you were guiding wow, that's incredible
0: yeah, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> everest is no easy, easy mountain, and uh, it was my third attempt before I actually got to the top of that mm-hmm. uh, but then well, since then,
1: what I had to- uh, the other two times I and mean, what what changed to where that third time was a success versus the the first two was it weather or was it just you did it a different well, route what
0: happened yeah back in those days it had never been commercially guided so we were kind of making it up as we went and we found out that yeah oxygen's good more is better we found out that you really need is you need 2 months at least 2 months just to get acclimatized we found out that we do much better if we have fixed lines so people aren't falling off the mountain uh, but this yeah. these are all things that we were we were learning this is in the late late 80s so uh by the time i finally got to the top um 92 uh we had we had ch- we had figured out all the ways not to do it and uh then we could actually get people to the summit and we were very successful we we're the first day it was commercially guided uh was the day that we went to the top
2: oh that's so cool oh. i never knew yeah. that
1: that's really cool oh. very cool yeah so all right, so let's go back to your
0: Alaska. Days. Yes, in let's do
1: early, early Alaska. Days, <laughs> you're still guiding in Alaska. You know, oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. How, how many times have you been on Denali now?
0: Well, I've been on it a lot of times, but uh, to the summit, sixty times. And we would we would consider that a world record, wouldn't we? Oh yeah, it's nobody else is crazy enough. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so let's go back to that. That first time that you were uh, you were in Alaska, and you, you mentioned that there are several years there before you actually attempted the mountain. What were some of the uh, what were some of the best advice that you received during that that training period where you were learning from from the the mentors, from the uh, you know from kind of the old Alaskan climbers?
0: Well, the guys I got to learn from, I was very fortunate, blessed uh, to find some really capable, competent old timers. Uh, And some of them weren't all that old even. But uh, the the big thing that I learned was that it's it's easy to be a tough guy. It's hard to be comfortable in the mountains. So anybody can go out there and suffer. But if you're going to do it, Often and repeatedly, you need to actually learn how to do it with some style and some grace and patience and learn how to enjoy the experience. And for me, that was, you know, as a as a young 20-year-old, uh, I was just bursting at the seams to do something really manly. But the, the old timers, they were like, yeah, slow down, kid. You can enjoy this. <laughs> if, you, if you slow down, you might be able to actually get to the top. So I took off like oh horse out of the gate and uh i ended up falling on my nose on my first attempt on denali uh, fortunately i had some friends there and a, a very good guide and he basically picked me up dust me off and said you know relax there's a big mountain you got to pace yourself be patient and don't pick up the biggest load and put it in your sled and make sure you take care of yourself during the day so self-maintenance is a very important aspect of mountaineering that was one of the big things that I gleaned from these guys need to take care of yourself first, then you can take care of the team. If you, if you're willing to do that, you can climb almost anything with patience and a little bit of luck with the weather.
1: Hmm. So, so we're, uh, we're having a lot of people, or actually around the world that are facing the whole isolation experience right now. And I know you went up Denali solo, and became the first mountaineer to actually climb to the top and get all the way back to the bottom on a winter solo ascent. So congratulations again on that one, because I'm sure that wasn't an easy feat. And yeah. I know that you, you trained for a while for that and, and organized it, but you had to have faced, because let, let's kind of give people an idea of what, what it's like to be on the mountain during that time. Uh, I'm assuming there wasn't anybody else on the mountain at the time probably nobody uh, for quite a distance from where you were I, I would assume you were at least 30, 40, 50 miles away from the nearest human being
0: and <laughs> yes. that,
1: right and at least and you were on a glacier um, in the where you can't you can't drive to this place uh, you probably be very difficult even to fly in if you were you know you just have to pick the right time and day would be my guess so you were really really isolated and you couldn't just call for help and expect it to show up in five or ten minutes if you needed it so explain kind of the whole isolation experience what it what it felt like how how you were living on that mountain by yourself (laughs)
0: Well Denali's remote to begin with. The closest town is sixty miles from the base camp on Denali. Uh, but in the winter time, not only do you have the distance, but you also have the weather as a huge factor. So to access the mountain, we had to wait for the perfect weather to fly in in a very small bush plane and we flew in and landed in February the 15th. It was probably 20, thirty below at that point, but that's that's actually warm in the winter on Denali. Uh, Mm. So I was fortunate, got in, and, uh, you know, as soon as the plane took off, I was just overwhelmed by the silence and how committed I was to the project, which is now uh, jumping up in front of my eyes. Is like, wow, I'm the only one here. Why fall a crevasse? I fall a grass. That's exactly. probably the last thing I'm going to do uh,
1: if I get yeah, you know, hit I by an avalanche. I, I want What's people that? to kind of get an idea because there are so many people in isolation right now. But you know, at least they're in their homes, and they're in their communities, and they have loved ones around them. But you can still get this feeling of isolation. But but to compare it to the extreme that you had to experience, I mean, I could imagine sitting in that valley, looking at these mountains. Just they're they're not like looking at mountains in Colorado. These things are massive and no life around you, nothing but you, I mean, and like you said, the, the silence, except maybe for the wind coming through, uh, that initial uh, feeling that you had, I mean, except thinking that you might fall in a crevasse, and that'd be the last thing you would see, what are some of the other feelings that you felt at that moment? I mean, some of the, the ones that were challenging, but also, I would think you'd have some some something just amazing well up in you also.
0: Well, Todd, to be in nature that raw and that impressive uh, always fills me and my spirit with a sense of awe. Uh, we we're very blessed to have a a beautiful a beautiful world to live in, and uh, I think in the mountains it's it's the most obvious. Uh, there's very little of mankind that's obvious, and and here I am by myself and with this huge project in front of me and feeling pretty small, pretty insignificant. And I think, you know, today we are also pretty, feeling that same very insignificant, very small, uh, where, you know, we're basically uh, at war with a, something that's invisible, we can't even see. It's It makes us, you know, with all of our intelligence and all of our science and all of our everything, you know, society, the civilization. And, and yet, uh, right now I, I feel pretty insignificant, not like, unlike what I felt, uh, on the glacier, really insignificant, big challenge in front of me. And, uh, knowing that I was going to have to do a lot of, a lot of work in my mind, uh, in my head to, to be able to go forward. So this is, this is part of the
1: aspect that, that, I
0: was filled with at that moment. And, and, and other now.
1: people tried this expedition before, trying to climb solo in the winter on Denali?
0: Yeah, several people had tried it. Uh, in particular, uh, the Japanese uh, adventurer named Naomi Thurmura, uh actually tried it four years earlier and got to the top. He left a flag up there, so everybody knows he made it. But on his way down, he disappeared. Uh, and was never found. I was actually in Japan when uh, they declared him dead, and it was an amazing, uh, an emotional time in Japan uh, because he had become a, a popular hero to the Japanese people. Most most Japanese tend to do things more in a, a group setting, but uh, he was a, an adventurer and a soloist, and had been the first first person ever to climb Denali in the winter solo excuse me, in the summer solo, and then came back to do it in the winter. So he did these two amazing things, unfortunately, uh, vanished uh, upon descending. And uh, we still don't know where he is today.
1: Yeah, so you you knew that this had a, um, did not really have a history of success, this type of expedition that you were heading on.
0: Yeah, another soloist just disappeared into a crevasse, you know, in the same time frame uh, within a year or two of of Naomi's climbing up there uh, another soloist who wanted to climb it in the winter ended Mm -hmm. up uh, gone in a crevasse and other people had tried it and turned back frostbite and I mean it's 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 multiple there's multiple risk in trying it in the summertime in the wintertime those are all double or triple so So,
2: so do you um Just to give an idea of what did you do to safeguard yourself from falling in a crevasse? Because I'm sure that's something that is, I mean, that's obviously a very real danger.
0: Well, I think it starts mentally. It starts upstairs. You have to psychologically uh, steal yourself for this kind of challenge. Uh, You have to believe in yourself and then uh, you have to do your homework. So I, talked to other people who had tried it in the winter. I uh, asked questions. I had some of my heroes were the guys who climbed it originally as a team uh, in uh, 67, I think it was. Uh, They climbed it as a team and they had horrendous time. As a matter of fact, it was so cold, so windy and such a challenge that three of them got left for dead. However, they they did survive, and they wrote a book about it. It's called Minus 148, so, and that was the temperature they experienced. That was the end of the wind chill chart, and for the how cold it was and how windy it was, they just called it what, what the chart said it was, which was unbelievable cold.
1: Hey, Bert, um, uh, yeah. Sonny, our moderator here, I think has a question or two. So, Sonny, are you... Yeah. yeah hey
3: guys so thank you everybody for being on we i have a two-part question that's coming in from uh jane for i hope i'm saying that correctly uh she says it's been hard to make the decision to stay in during the pandemic um how hard was it to make the decision to scrap an expedition after all the planning and expense and i know that all three of you here have experienced that where you've trained for over at least a year for something, and then have something come up. So I would love to hear from all three of you on this one.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, <well>, the, <laughs> I love it. Uh, the uh, devil's in the details. Uh, as I mentioned, you have to uh, first get the mind right, then you have to do your homework. So I not only uh, discussed this with lots of people, but then I uh, climbed as much as I could before I went up there. Uh, I was a Denali guide at the time, so I was able to to use my knowledge of the mountain so that I could actually navigate in total whiteout with a compass, and, and that was before GPS, so I was able to navigate by the, the, the lay of the land, the feeling underneath my feet, and uh, the compass. I knew pretty much where I was most all the time, even though that that whole expedition was plagued by whiteout and storm. Uh, I also had going for me the fact that I knew the right equipment and the stuff that I uh, was going to use, I was able to use the summer before and uh, make sure that it was adequate. And I got to practice uh, earlier um, in my career. I had climbed Logan, the highest mountain in Canada uh, wintertime as well. So we get, I got to use the same techniques that my team and I had developed on Logan. So that was ultimately it worked out that I was really prepared on that level and uh, prepared because I went and got pre acclimatized uh, guiding in South America on the highest mountain in South America. So uh, not only was I always active, exercising daily, but I now i just come back from a high mountain in Antarctica. I had done my homework. I had gathered the right gear. I had gotten the best pilot, uh, bush, best bush pilot that I knew to fly me in. Uh, I had all my ducks in a row. And I think this is really critical for people is to have a good plan and then work that plan. Start with the basics of you know, mind over matter. You have to know you can do it before you, you attempt something like this. You have to believe in yourself then you have to give yourself all the right tools from the food the supplies the equipment the experience uh, the pre-acclimatization so this is where i'm coming from todd how about yourself uh,
1: well uh hey sunny Sonny. yes yes i'm hey. here
2: okay. <laughs> a okay,
1: because there was a part of that question i wanted to make sure that i addressed too it's almost as if hey, if you train for this, then, and it doesn't happen, how do you deal with that? Yes. That, was that part of the question?
3: Yes, yes, and, and what I had in my mind, I know Julia's training for a marathon or some sort, oh, and I yeah. know that, that, Todd, you trained for a year. That's your origin story. Why don't you tell us just real quickly uh, well, your origin story and what happened?
1: Well, what uh, one, one of the things that I wanted to say was on on the side where you train and you do your best and then it doesn't happen, I will tell you how I get through that. And that is I don't place my value as who I am as a person based on anything that I do or do not accomplish. My value comes from within myself, you know, just because, you know, I'm, I'm a human, I'm a soul just like everybody else is. And that's how I value myself and that's how I value others. It doesn't really matter you know, if they've accomplished great things or not accomplished great things. Um, but I think that those that do accomplish uh, great things in this world can help teach us to bring out that value and express it more in this world so it can benefit ourselves and others. So that's how I'm gonna answer that, that question, then I'll let Julie take it from there.
2: Well, and I think that one of the things, just to kind of piggyback on what Vern and um, Todd are saying is that it can be disappointing when we have a, a plan, a goal, and because of no fault of your own, you start to see things begin to unravel. Um, I am currently, have been training for an Ironman um, that was supposed to take place May 31st here in Tulsa. And it is not happening anymore. We're not at that time. It has been postponed and maybe canceled for this year. We don't know yet. And um, you do, and I, I see people right now, I'm a, I'm a therapist in mental health, and you see people going through, um, it's almost like stages of grief. Of you know, There's an anger, there's a sadness, there's a, surely this isn't happening. No way, this isn't happening. Um, bargaining with yourself in your head. Okay, if I do this, maybe, and maybe this will happen. Um, And finally, you get to a point of acceptance where, okay, this is happening. How am I going to move forward? And that's what I tell clients. Okay, this is where you are now. How are you going to move forward? We can't change um, what has happened, what is going on around us a lot of the time, but this is where I am right now. So how am I going to move forward? And to make that um, determination within yourself to have the discipline like Vern is saying to plan, how am I going to do this? So that I can look back in a month, six months, and a year from now, and not feel like I have just wasted this time in my life when I could have been doing something productive. And so it's just to have that mental um, aptitude and discipline and determination that I'm not going to waste this part of my life. Um, The virus is not going to beat me. I'm going to do what I can to continue to live my life and to be the best person, the most loving person, the kindest person, and do everything I can to to spread that joy in the world and that peace in the world because the world needs it right now. It really does. People are feeling afraid and they need those of us who can come out of that and be that person to, to go there. So that's what I'd really encourage people to do to think about others and go there as well. That's great.
3: We have another question coming in for Vern. It's from Michael Weishable. (laughs) I hope I'm saying your name right. He says, hi, Vern. I'm wondering if you have lower elevation peaks on your list. Wondering about one in particular, Mount Gunnar, Nasland and the St. Elias Mountains.
0: Yeah, I... I, very good question, Michael. Uh, I think I'm going to leave that peak alone. Uh, Gunner was a very good friend of mine before he got killed on it, uh, and even though it's a beautiful peak, uh, it's it's quite remote. And uh, uh, i just there's other mountains I'd rather rather climb. It would be very uh, dif- difficult for for me to to be there without just totally thinking about Gunner so uh it's a, <laughs> I've, i'd love to see people people climb it in in honor of him but for me it's uh that mountain in particular is not on my list i've got other ones on my list uh, uh that unfortunately are, are being postponed as we speak um i was supposed to go to k2 this summer but uh that's not going to happen so i'll just uh, train hard i'll have a whole nother year of training which will be great uh so i'm i'm looking forward to being uh, the new and improved version of myself uh, for for climbing K two, so that's not exactly a, a lower peak, but there's there's plenty here um, in, where I'm located. There's there's the many many hills, and each one of them is. Uh, I like I mean I like getting out and just pushing myself hard going up a hill. That's uh, for me. That's that's a, that's a challenge in itself, and and those are the things that that I resonate
1: with. So, uh, back on the isolation side. Yes. in Alaska, I want to take us back to that solo climb. Why don't you give us an idea what camp was like? We'll be right back. You're listening to Love Leaders Podcast, and I'm your host, Todd Houston. You can hear replays of our show at Spotify, Google Play, and other top podcast directories. And don't forget to check out our Facebook and Instagram pages, and please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Now, back to the show. I want to take us back to that solo climb. Why don't you give us an idea what camp was like? Yeah, how, how, you, were, uh, how you were surviving in that kind of isolation? What, what kind of extreme conditions that you were facing?
0: The big challenge of the wintertime in Alaska is, this is a no-brainer, it's the cold.
2: Uh, minus 148 did you ever get to minus 148 I hope not (laughs) but there's no
1: there's no
0: way for me to tell because I didn't have the capacity here for that say that again Uh, how do do you prepare for that kind of cold oh uh, you you wear everything you own basically Uh, uh, cold showers is great Uh, you know skiing with your shirt off those are all things that I know people have done, carry snowballs in your hands when you're working out, things like that. But, but it's, you have to learn how to, to live with nature rather than fight nature. The, the big challenge uh, was to stay warm. Of course, when I'm moving, you really don't have to wear very much, even at 40 below. uh, If you're moving quickly and you have a big pack and you've got a sled behind you, then you're actually going to be working really hard. So you just need, uh, something to break the wind. So I had a windsuit on the outside. Then I have uh, a layer of fleece on the inside of that. And then long johns. I mean, very not much stuff. But I'm moving and working hard. As soon as I'd stop and unstrap my skis, then I'd pull on my insulated pants and pull on a parka. And then, now that I'm not working as hard, I would start digging with all my might to go underground. You've got to get underground to be uh, warm in the winter. The Eskimos knew this thousands of years ago. You, the snow the snow is actually a great insulator. Okay, I I, say, you
1: say underground, you, may, you were digging into the snow
0: bank. <laughs> un, under the snow, exactly. Okay. So I'm going down in the snow, I'm going to make a snow cave, a modified what I called a ranger trench or a skier trench. And basically it looks about the size of a big chest freezer, about six, seven feet long about four feet wide, four feet high. And that's what I'm trying to excavate as quickly as possible. I could dig in and put a roof on it with my skis and my, uh, my uh, uh, ski holes across the top and then laid a tarp over that and I'd bury it with a foot of snow. Once you got a foot of snow over you, that's insulation. You know, in between each one of the snowflakes, even though they're cold and icy, is a little bit of air. And that air acts like insulation, just like it does in our walls and our homes. Uh, with a foot of insulation, it could be 50 below outside, maybe 60 below, I don't know, I didn't take a thermometer. But inside, I could get it up to 30 degrees above freezing. I mean, above zero, so that, that was just below the freezing point. And 30 above zero is way better than 50 below zero. I mean, that's 80 degree differential. And in there, you can actually take your gloves off. You can cook. You can sew up your uh, the leg on your on your pants where you cut them with your crampons. You can do exercises. You can play harmonica. You can cook. You can um, play games. There's lots of things you can do in that kind of environment. So the big thing to do is get underneath the snow as soon as possible.
2: And Vern, I wanted to ask you, so, um is that something that helped you through those feelings of isolation is it sounds like you had things that you were doing every day that you um, probably to help you stay sane. <laughs> I mean, imagine. You had once
1: kind of I imagine. W- say that again, Todd. Like you had some kind of routine going to help you.
0: Yes, exactly. So once I got underground, the first thing I needed to do was get the stove going. So cooking was one of the routines. So first thing you do, you're, you're thirsty, you've drank all your water during the hard effort getting up there. You've been going like a maniac trying to generate enough heat so you don't freeze. Once you get on the ground, the wind stops, the snow stops, the light stops. Uh, so the headlight goes on and you get your stove out and you start cooking. While I'm cooking, I'm setting up my bed, setting up where I'm gonna sleep uh excavating a little bit getting a little bit nicer so that i don't have snow falling on me and this becomes uh my my first part of the the phase of my routine get water in board get nice hot water on board then you need to um get the food on board Mm -hmm. so big big things once i've done that then the best thing for me to do would be to get on the radio, figure out what the weather is gonna be for the next day. That might take 15, 20 minutes. Uh, the next thing I would do uh, would be try to relax, make sure I have enough hot water for the, the night. I would always make a, a bottle of, of hot liquid and throw it down the foot of my sleeping bag to thaw my feet out. That was really important. And then I'd crawl into the bag and go to sleep. Uh, at that time of the year, you have lots of dark and not too much light in Alaska at that latitude. In the morning, I'd wake up, I'd start the stove. Once I got the stove going, I would start taking care of my ablutions. I would brush my teeth, I would take care of myself. And then this day would unfold. When the weather was bad, I might be there for two, three, four days, not knowing when it's ever gonna end. And this was mentally, I had to fight that in this, by having something to do at every moment, the routine, gave me um, a handrail, something to grab onto, mentally made me a lot stronger. So I knew right after I had breakfast and took care of my my cleanliness, then I was gonna exercise. So I'd spend an hour exercising, push-ups, sit-ups, planks, all sorts of stretching moves. I'm inside of something that's no bigger than a big freezer. (laughs) So I mean, not only am I isolated, I'm imprisoned, really, I'm entombed. This is like a big grave that's been dug by myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm trapped inside there until the weather imp- gets better. After exercise, I would get out my harmonica and I'd play for an hour. And then after playing for an hour, I would get my puzzle out. Have you ever seen those little triangle boards with the, uh, the, the T's in top of them and the little holes? And there's
2: like- sure,
3: Yeah, a Cracker
0: Barrel.
2: <laughs>
3: cracker
0: Barrel, perfect. Cracker Ooh. Barrel. So, I- course couldn't carry something like that up there but I knew how many holes there were and so I'd make a little board in the snow on the floor of my my cave and I would put little I'd take my finger and make little dimples and I put a raisin in each dimple except for one and then I'd start jumping until I got down to one raisin was left on the board.
1: Oh that's pretty
2: good. I don't
0: want to play yeah. against him in Cracker Barrel. Like we <laughs> <laughs> <have a game. laughs> no you don't. Anyway, the, that was, I, I could spend actually two hours doing that. Then I had repair time, where I just repair everything that I had. I'd make sure I put glue on the things that were delaminating, I would stitch up uh, anything that was ripped and torn. Um, I would repatch my sleeping pad, which I had kicked with my crampons, made for a very cold uh, night. I could usually go for a couple of hours before it deflated itself. So every, every day I had a repair session. After repair prayer session, I would get on the radio and I'd listen to public radio where they're having Dick Costell was reading a book and he'd do just a chapter every day, You'd get, get about an hour of reading it. So my mind was now off of the storm, off of the fact that I was looking at this very challenging, risky effort to climb in the wintertime and focus on uh, a, a spring in a, a stream running through a beautiful meadow in Virginia. And I could could focus on that for an hour and listen to all the, the crickets chirping and the frogs croaking. And it, for me, it was like this amazing ability to leave my troubles behind and to go off into a fantasy land.
2: And that is actually something that we, um, that we talk with people about when we're um, in the mental health field, just anybody to help anybody. There are times that we are in situations that we can't really change the circumstances around us, but we can um, go within ourselves to find peace and calm. And a really good way to do that is to do exactly what you said. Just, just close your eyes, be quiet. Picture the most beautiful, or the, a place where you feel very safe and feel at peace, and go through your five senses. How does it smell? How do, what do you see? Um, how, uh, how do you, what do you feel? What do you hear? Um, do you have anything, are you drinking a soda or, you know, warm tea or what is it? And to go through that because it does help you calm because when you are calm within, it helps you go out here and handle things in a much more positive way and have a much better outcome or the chance for a much better outcome. Yeah. So I love that you did that.
1: I think also, you know, sometimes in life we, we find our places in situations or places or whatever that we think, oh, I wish I were somewhere else or doing something else or whatever. But if we really focus on the now and we focus on what's really going on, it it might be the very best place for us to be right now. And I can't help but think that, okay, a snow cave that's about the size of a refrigerator may not sound like the ideal living conditions, but something also tells me that that might have been a really good place for you to be on that mountain compared to being – Outside, I'm assuming that there was temperature differences. Uh, there, there, there. You were provided some protection there.
0: It, it was, it was as small as as con, you know solitary confinement in the worst jail you can think of. But for me, it was palatial because I could actually, even through a foot of snow, I could still hear the wind roaring overhead. I could, I, I could feel the cold seeping in. So I, I, you know, stay in the bag and. Do some more exercises, uh, but for me, it was it was my home, it was my palace. And So I, you have to, you know, you, you have to control your thoughts. I mean, and this is one of the challenges: is we think perhaps we are our mind, but there's something I believe that's bigger than your ability to think. It's it's kind of the the controller of it's your I believe your soul, perhaps that uh, is really uh, what can control your body and your mind. And for me, uh, my spirit was something that was very important to have running the show. As long as I had my positive uh, outlook, as long as I had a spirit of knowing that I even though it was dire where I was, it was self-chosen and self-inflicted perhaps, but I wanted to be there and I wanted to challenge myself. And I was willing to rise to that that challenge and rise to the occasion and do the best I could.
1: Your temperature inside was what versus outside. You mentioned the wind, but I have to think the temperature was
0: Yeah, so I'm I'm I can take my gloves off. I can, you know, I can take care of myself. I can cook and do all that inside. But outside, it's I mean your your ability to spend a night out uh I mean that's could have been what happened to Naomi Yormo, the Japanese climber was he just didn't get back to his, his cave, and, and he died. I mean, it's, it's, he, it, it definitely wants to kill
1: you. There's 80 degrees difference. You do have one question here uh, about living conditions inside. And, uh, Sonny, who was that that, that asked, asked the question? Uh, we have
3: uh, Carl McMillan. has a, Actually, I, it's a great question. I would love to know the answer. Inside the coffin, how do you handle bodily functions?
0: Ah,
3: <laughs> you know, well, one of the biggest question. questions
0: that come up. Thank, thank you, Carl, for asking that. Oh, it was pretty easy. I, I would actually just roll up my sleeping bag and dig a hole in the floor, a deep one, and then uh, and uh, drop things off at the pool and uh, and I'd pour out my pea bottle i I definitely used a pea bottle and uh, pour it down the hole and then pack in some snow on top of it. and it was great next day i had to do the same thing but i just make sure it was in a different spot in the floor yeah,
3: yeah i would hope so <laughs> <laughs> we have another great question uh, and i'm sure th- and i have intimate knowledge of your we're re-releasing a Vern's book it's his account of his winter denali ascent in 1988 so i've read this book multiple times you guys are going to love it when we re-release it so I I kind of know some extra details but but Jane asks a great question how much daylight did you have at Denali in the winter and have you ever been afraid on the mountain and I think
2: that's a great question
0: Uh well yeah I was <laughs> I was afraid when I got off the airplane Um <laughs> yeah the yes I mean, it's not the lack of fear uh you fear is actually good uh Jane I think the fear keeps you honest. The fear keeps you facing the demons. That keeps you alert and on your toes and checking everything twice. Uh, because of the fear of falling in a crevasse, uh, I actually took uh, a lot of extra equipment and weight was at a premium. Uh, but I still took a ladder uh, that I wore around my waist and I took a rope when where there's nobody to tie on to i took extra pickets i took an ascender um so these are things that i took because of my desire to come back alive to be able to talk about it uh so was it fear yeah initially it's fear of, of dying but then you use that as a tool to make sure your training is is complete your are you're taking the best equipment possible. You're using the best techniques possible. Uh, and uh, that's really what a mountain guide does. Uh, we try to mitigate risk. There are risks in mountains uh, avalanches, frostbite, crevasse falls, uh, hypothermia. There are risks in life as well. But if we use the right techniques, take those in, take, take, the challenges, the risk, into account, and then use the right techniques, the right equipment, and the right uh, attitude. We can do amazing things. And for me, that was, that's how I overcame the fear. Uh, There was one moment, Jane, I I have to say that I, uh, I still don't know how I got through it. I was skiing on my way down. I'd already climbed the mountain. I was going back to base camp the last day, and I skied across a bridge of snow that went across a crevasse. The bridge completely camouflaged the crevasse. I could not see it. But when I stepped on it, the snow that was underneath me fell away and turned black. And I was standing right in the center of about a three foot wide crevasse. My feet were in dead center, but fortunately I was on skis.
1: Oh.
0: And i this is part of the technique. I had taken the strongest skis possible, even though they weighed more, because I thought at one moment that I could potentially be relying on my skis to keep me out of the crevasse. The skis did, and this is where the fear came in. I do not know to this day how I got off that bridge, but it only took me an instant when I saw that black hole open up underneath me. I put a ski pole on each side and pushed really hard. And with my big pack and the sled, I cleared the crevasse. That is... uh, Probably the fear factor, the adrenaline kept kicking in, that enabled me to do that, but I don't know how anybody could levitate off a three-foot hole like I did. Wow. Um,
1: it,
3: <laughs>
0: it worked.
1: <laughs> it so worked. Burn, uh, using one of your terms. was that your your biggest pancake? pancake eyes? <laughs> <laughs> yes, pancake
0: guys. Uh, when, when you have that kind of adrenaline, you def- definitely eyeballs get big. Uh, I was looking for any, I was looking for somebody to ta- toss me that, that, that life buoy, a uh, lifeline uh, to get off there. Uh, I was, I was very fortunate. I was able to clear, clear the crevasse. Uh, getting back to the, the question, how much light is there? Uh, I started in February, uh, February the 15th. And so the light there was probably about five hours a day uh, at February. So everybody knows that December the 20th, 21st, right in that area is the smallest amount of sunlight in the Northern hemisphere, the longest in the Southern, but that's a different story. Uh, That's why I didn't go in December, I needed light. And not only to see, but also uh, psychologically, I think you're stronger knowing that it's getting warmer each day. So when I started in February, each day was getting longer. And in Alaska, at that latitude, you're gaining maybe 10, 15 minutes a day when it's really in full swing, it's moving quickly. So I started with five hours of sunlight. And then towards the end, I was probably getting eight to 10 hours of sunlight in, uh, uh, well, actually, yeah, that was 14th, 15th of March, uh, excuse me, the 14th of March is when I flew out. And I think I was up to Eight yeah, eight, nine hours of sunlight, which is great, because only a week later it's moving really quick. Uh a week later is the uh equinox. And the equinox, as opposed to the solstice, uh is when uh you have twelve hours of daylight and twelve hours of night all over the world. Mm-hmm. So I was working towards having, you know, lots of daylight. The, interesting say I say it's light, but you're not getting direct sunshine uh in uh, the the glacier areas in the valleys because the mountains, of course, are blocking most of it. But psychologically, uh, working into longer and longer days and more and more light uh, made it easy for me to 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 know I was at least going the right direction.
1: And when you're, you you're gaining light up there, you're gaining like ten minutes a day, or
0: oh yeah, or so yeah, yeah, ten to fifteen like just yeah.
1: a couple of minutes. It's it's really kind of a drastic deal. You know, one other thing, when you were up on uh, an alley, even though you were totally isolated from everybody, uh, no human beings within miles from you, staying in this refrigerator-sized uh, snow cave, I think it's interesting that you mentioned once before that you had a visitor.
0: Yes, um, and this gets back more to the spiritual side, Uh, As I mentioned earlier, there's a Japanese climber who climbed it to the summit four years earlier. Uh, I felt that he did me a a big favor, he made it possible. Up to that time, I didn't think anybody could possibly solo it in the winter time, but he did. Uh, And as I mentioned, I was in Japan when he he disappeared. Uh, There was a great outpouring uh, for his loss of life, and it touched me. It touched my, my my heart. It touched my soul when I was in Japan to have little Japanese ladies grab me by the lapels and pull me down to them and say, where is Naomi? And I was just like, wow, this guy was such an amazing.
1: Is uh it inspiration to the culture? Yeah,
0: inspiration was the great word. A, amazing inspiration to the people of Japan. That he could affect an eight-year-old lady's life, and she wanted to know where he was. Uh, for me, that's anyway. It touched me, and uh, a few years later, uh, I was thinking, like, gosh, he actually opened the door, and it's just a matter of time before someone comes from somewhere, some hot climber from Italy or from California or something comes up there and climbs our mountain. But yeah, I felt really. Like, I knew the mountain and I, I wanted to be an Alaskan who climbed the mountain. I, I wanted to be climbed by an Alaskan. I think that was my motivator. I don't know if that answered your question. I kind of rambled it, but uh, for,
1: for me, well, the. You said, you said you had a visitor while you were in the. Yes. Okay.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Naomi, uh, the reason why I was talking about it is because when I was in my high camp, I actually excavated a cave that was already there. And it was a cave that had traditionally been there for many, many years. And I believe that was the same cave that Naomi spent his last night in. Uh, Anyway, I climbed in there, went to sleep, and somewhere in the middle of the night, I mean, I'm underneath feet and feet of snow with a very long tunnel entrance going into this cave. And all of a sudden there was a woof of fresh air stirring in the cave. And I was like, what, that's not possible. And then the hair stood up on my arms and I realized that I wasn't alone. And I felt that, that Naomi was there with me in the cave and supporting me. His spirit was there in support of my effort to not only climb it, but to get back down alive. Mm. So wow. it was a very, very touching moment for me. I actually spoke Japanese to his spirit. And just said, "Good morning, Naomi. Uh, how are you?" And for me, um, that was that was that was a very an amazing moment uh, in my life.
2: You you must have felt his love for you and for what you were doing and your motive, your purpose behind it.
0: Yeah, I felt he was in support of me. He was he was there not to haunt me. He was there to encourage me, and of. Uh, for me to have that, uh, you know, I'm mean, I'm still in I'm at now at the highest camp. I'm hypoxic. I'm am getting colder. Actually, I got a little frost nip that day. I don't know if I'm going to make it to the top. I don't know if the weather's ever going to solve uh, for a good day. Um, I'm running out of food. I'm running out of fuel. And to have that encouragement from a like, like spirit uh, was phenomenal. Um, And so I, that, at that point, I felt very, very confident that things were going to go well.
1: Almost like no matter what your isolation is, no matter how extreme it can be, in some kind of reality, we're never really alone. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. I agree. We never are.
3: so when you finished this climb, the state of Alaska indoctrinated you into the Alaska Sports Hall of Fame.
0: Inducted. Right.
3: Inducted. <laughs> I'm sorry. For I'm, I'm sorry. That's all right. Yeah. And I've actually seen your plaque. They they've they've hung all of the Hall of Fame folks in the, uh, the airport in one yes. of the lower tunnels. So if you're ever in Anchorage International Airport, if we ever get to travel again. Be sure to head on down to the lower concourse and you'll get to see this massively beautiful plaque that's got Byrne's accomplishments uh, hung next to some of the Editarod winners and some of other folks who've um, done amazing achievements. Um, with their climb. One of the things I love about your story, Vern, and I I love food, okay? I just can't get past, I have to know where my food's coming from at all times. (laughs) I I like to know when I'm going to eat. And one of the most riveting, one of the most riveting parts about your story, and this is inside the book that we're going to be re-releasing, is, uh, so answer me two questions. How many days were you supposed to only be on the mountain?
0: Well, I had accurately expected my climb would take 12 days uh, mm-hmm. that would be getting to the summit and coming all the way back down and maybe even a day thrown in there uh, waiting on the weather for the airplane to come in being a mindful mountaineer I decided I should take 25 percent extra food and fuel which mm-hmm. amounted to 16 days of supplies uh, anymore I probably couldn't have moved it up the mountain However, uh, because because it was a very stormy uh, season that year, every day or two, I get pinned down for one, two, three, four days in a row by these huge storms that were coming through. So uh, um, as soon as I realized that I was going to be off schedule, I started going to half rations. So instead of eating all my food. I was working on probably about 5,000 calories a day. I went to half that, uh, which is sounds like uh, it would be sufficient for just laying around. Of course, you got to realize I'm, I'm my own heater up there. Uh, mm-hmm. So not only am I breathing hard, but I'm, I'm trying to generate a lot of heat. So I was still burning through a lot of calories. But uh, the days ticked by and stretched out. Uh, fortunately, uh, I had some good luck. Uh, the bad luck was storm after storm had pinned me down, and ultimately, I was 29 days on the mountain. Mm. So, uh, yeah. stretch. St- sometimes we have to make do with uh, the situation as it uh, plays out.
3: I was going to say, I'm no mathematician, but uh, in, wasn't there um, a time on one day where you found a food supply?
0: This is the luck that I was talking about. Yeah, this
3: is the part, I just love this part of your story. Please tell us really quickly, and then we have one so more question in the chat. It's
0: 16,000 feet. I was digging my snow cave, and in the process, I ran into a cache that somebody had buried the year before, so it was a cache of food and fuel, uh, and most notably uh, freeze-dried uh, sweet and sour pork uh, and several <laughs> gallons of gasoline. At that point, I knew that uh, I had a really really good chance of making the summit. Uh, but I, I still can't eat sweet and sour pork today. Uh, the other, the other <laughs> wonderful thing was my co uh, my pilot, when he, uh, realized that I, uh, had been in so many storms, he, he flew down to base camp and left his survival rations for me. So when I got to camp, uh, when I ultimately, would get down to base camp, I would have some food there. He, uh, stuck a big flag on him for me so when I did roll into base camp and spend another three days I did have food and fuel uh that got me through the uh the last few days of my uh my my program my ordeal my my expedition your
3: Christmas card list every year I would hope
0: oh yeah well he's he's passed but uh an amazing man he was our lieutenant governor for a while and actually met the Dalai Lama in in Tibet so amazing Gentlemen, uh, Lowell Thomas Jr.
2: So we
3: just have one question, one more question, Todd.
1: Yeah, we got time for one more question. We've already gone over a couple of minutes, but go ahead. Let's do that, and then and then we'll uh, we're going to give you the last word, Vern.
3: <laughs> okay, Jane has a kind of a technical question. She said, "Vern, did you have to finish the climb before the equinox to classify it as a winter climb?"
0: Good, good question. Technical, and uh, the answer is yes. Uh, fortunately, I summited on the seventh of March, and so I, that gave me uh, a couple of weeks before I really had to worry about uh, busting through. Uh, but it, it's the time you summit is, is what they count. So I had I had a couple of weeks of padding there, Jane, and uh, I was lucky because I needed those couple of weeks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. Vern, thank you very much.
2: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: It's just awesome seeing you and obviously uh, kind of going in a little more detail than than you probably normally do in a Q&A session. But, you know, thanks for really opening up and, and sharing all of this. And I, I would just like to leave with you giving the people that are going through the challenges that they're going through today just uh some piece of information, some piece of advice that might inspire them and encourage them to to get through this um, after after the experiences you've had that have been you know really 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 difficult, but somehow you came out not only going through it, you came out successfully and you have done nothing but Climbed to the top ever since then.
0: Yes. uh, Actually, I'll go back to my my mentors. I think you need to relax. You need to make some plans. You need to have a routine. You need to believe in yourself. And with those things, you can accomplish great things.
1: All right. Awesome. Thank you very much. I want to thank everybody uh, that joined us, all the people that ask questions, and we will, we will be back, so thank you much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Love Leaders Podcast. We welcome you to find more information at loveleaderspodcast.com. You can also replay our shows at Spotify, Google Play, and other top podcast directories. Don't forget to check out our Facebook and Instagram pages and subscribe, rate, review, and share. Now, go use the greatest power within you, the power of love. Go change your life, and go change the world.